Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Option show with Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards is off building the Sound Health portal. I highly recommend checking it out at soundhealthportal.com. You can now use the Nano Voice directly from a cell phone if needed. When you visit the portal, you can also join for free and run one of the current free campaigns, such as BioDiet or Neuroplasticity. Do a recording directly from your computer, submit it, and a report will be emailed to you typically in 12 hours or less. Dr. John Livingston, author of Never Binge Again, had to reschedule at the last moment. He'll be with us early next month. From the archives, I pulled the very popular show with Brian C. Wilson, author of John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. Here we go. Brian C. Wilson, author of the new book, John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age, is a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. He holds a Ph.D. in Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. After writing an award-winning book on serial inventor and the leading Seventh-day Adventist of his time, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the Fetzer Institute invited Wilson to write a full-length spiritual biography of its founder, John E. Fetzer. The Kalamazoo-based Fetzer was a radio pioneer, media mogul, and owner of the Detroit Tigers baseball team from 1961 to 1983. But what most people didn't know was that Johnny Fetzer was quietly behind the scenes, a significant figure in the consciousness movement, and a spiritual seeker of the First Order. For more than 60 years, he sought ways to open the doors of a higher consciousness, spiritual empowerment, paranormal insights, and energy medicine to humanity through spiritual study, science, and the influence of wealth at his disposal. Brian C. Wilson joins us to discuss his latest work, John E. Fetzer and Quest for the New Age. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. This is quite an adventure. I was really, having done terrestrial radio in the 80s and having done 700 hours of radio with Sherry, I just think that part of who John is is really quite amazing. I'll start at this point with the with your book after the research that you did for the johnny fetzer biography do you have a sense of what he was really seeking in the new age well i think there are a couple of things that were tremendously important for him um one uh although he was a tremendously spiritual person um he always wanted to harmonize science and religion and to some degree he wanted to come up with a, a science of the spirit and I think that goes all the way back to his earliest radio days when he was playing around with a, a crystal set, a really kind of primitive radio. And he found it was just magical to get voices and music and, and that kind of thing just straight from the air. So that got him thinking along spiritual lines that radio energies and spiritual energies uh, or subtle energies were somehow part of some great continuous spectrum. So I think part of his life was uh, devoted to um, proving the reality of spirit through science. And the other thing that was tremendously important for him was that uh, he was looking for his own spiritual transformation, but he always felt that that in itself wasn't enough, that he really wanted to basically catalyze 
uh, a global spiritual transformation yeah, that would lead to the new age. And that's why he started using that term way back in the 1960s. Hmm. And do you think he was, by his upbringing, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there was a spark, or I can't say it was a tipping point because I think he was too young at that point, but do you think a spark of some of this was his meeting of Jesus in the elevator? And talk to us about that a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, he had a couple of, uh, of, of, of powerful spiritual experiences when he was a kid. And he would talk about them uh, when he was in his 80s, in the 1980s. So these were experiences that had, uh, you know, tremendous staying power. He remembered them vividly. And the earliest was he was a a young kid and he was at a local, he grew up in Indiana and he was in a local department store in the small town. And he was playing around in the elevator. And at a certain point, he did something that got him into trouble and he looked up and he had a what was essentially he called a waking vision of Jesus, a dream of Jesus. And he was holding on to Jesus's leg and Jesus was looking down at him saying, I'll never let you go. And that, of course, fit very well with his his upbringing, which was very conventionally Christian. Uh, he was baptized a Methodist and went to Sunday school. Uh, and then his mother became a Seventh-day Adventist when he was a teenager and he followed her into that church. The second experience, which was tremendously important for him, uh, occurred during the great flu plan- pandemic um, at the end of World War I. Um, he got the flu and got tremendously sick, and his family really thought he was going to die. And In fact, the, um, uh, the family doctor came by one day and basically said no, kind of gave up hope on him. And, and John heard this from his sickbed, and he made a pledge to God that if he were spared, he would turn his life over to um, spiritual ends. And um, those two experiences, I think, really informed who he was later in life. And as I said, even way in the 1980s, when he was in his his 80s, he was still talking about these experiences as just tremendously powerful and formative. Well, I think I think it's so interesting. I, I I want to develop this for later, but I put a sort of a pin in this spot, talking about mm-hmm. him playing with the crystal radio waves. I think there's there's a link there, but I I, I want to save that. I want to develop something else first, but I really want to uh-huh, put sure. a pin in that because I think that's such a thing. Um, we talk in the book. There's a lot of conversation about him as a founder in a certain way of the new age. But he was really an extraordinary businessman, and particularly in the world of media and radio. I mean, he was yes. talk about the who. I mean, he was a. I, I can't help but use the term big deal. I mean, he was truly a big deal in the world of radio. Talk about that. That's yeah, nice. he, he he was, and and he got in on it at the you know at the ground floor. Um, he was lucky as a kid. He had a, um, a brother-in-law, a guy named Fred Ribble, who was a telegrapher for the Wabash Railroad. And Fred taught um, John uh, Morse code, and that got John interested in you know media in general at that point. And it was with Fred Ribble that John Fetzer built the first crystal set. So really, he developed his interest in radio very early on. We're talking about early teens, 19 teens. 
And then he had a, um, another opportunity. I mean, he went on to study radio. Um, a lot of it he was self-taught, but he did take classes at Purdue University as well in radio engineering. And the second opportunity he got was um, his mother had converted to Seventh-day Adventism, and somehow um, the president of Emanuel Missionary College, which was uh, the Seventh-day Adventist College in Berrien Springs, Michigan, uh, heard about John Fetzer and his expertise with radio. So he invited him to come up to um, Berrien Springs and enroll in the university and get a degree, um, but at the same time basically help them build their radio station. So he was he was one of the founders of one of the earliest commercial radio stations in southwest Michigan. And that was a great experience for him because he did everything. Uh, he initially started the radio station in his dorm room, and then the college uh, gave him created facilities, better facilities for the for the radio. And from then on, he was uh, he was the chief engineer. He put together the talent, the programs. He was an announcer, and there's these wonderful pictures of him in a tuxedo, announcing in front of one of these old time you know radio microphones. And so it was really a great apprenticeship for anybody who was interested in radio. And then the third opportunity that occurred was he graduated, uh, moved off to Ann Arbor to go to the University of Michigan to continue uh, graduate work in, in radio engineering. And Emanuel Missionary College, for some reason, decided the radio station was just, it was too expensive for them to maintain. So they offered John Fetzer to buy the radio license, yeah. which in terms of today, it sounds like peanuts, but uh, I've heard either variously $2,500 or $5,000 was the cost of the license, which for John was a tremendous amount of money. But happily, by this point, he uh, he was married. He married uh, uh, Rhea Yeager, who is also a student at Emanuel Missionary College, and her family uh, provided a loan so he could buy the, the radio license. And so he tried to run the radio station in Berrien Springs, but there were too many restrictions because it was Seventh-day Adventist uh, on his advertising. So um, he couldn't advertise uh, coffee or caffeinated beverages. He couldn't advertise meat. He couldn't advertise alcohol or tobacco. And they also said you couldn't play jazz. So there were real restrictions wow. on what he could do there. So he decided, okay, I'm going to move the radio station over to uh, a little town just to the east of there called Kalamazoo, Michigan. And he set up WKZO, uh, and that radio station is still broadcasting today. And it's on the basis of that that he got into FM radio. Um, he got into television in the 1950s. Uh, he got into um, – he had a Muzak uh, franchise uh, for Michigan that he ran for years and years and years. So he's into recorded music. And then finally, later on in life, he got into uh, cable TV. He was one of the early pioneers of cable TV and especially sports on cable TV. So he did tremendously well. He was a very brilliant businessman. And, you know, by the end of his life, he was listed as one of the 400th 400 wealthiest people in the United States by Forbes magazine. So his media empire was just incredibly successful. He got in at the right time, and he had these just really fine business instincts that allowed him to make some really good decisions. And at this time, was he already 
<laughs> was he already consulting the lead weight on the string in his pocket? I mean, was he <laughs> already using dowsing? Was he was his interest in that slowly evolving concurrently, or was he really focused on building his empire for that period of time? No, that's the interesting thing, because as he was building his empire, which I would have thought would have just, if, if it were me, it would have taken up every ounce of energy I had. Um, but he was also um, following this spiritual path and reading widely in metaphysical religions and, and developing the spiritual side of himself as well. And the interesting thing about that is um, he was a, a fervent Seventh-day Adventist uh, until he graduated from college, and then he began questioning the, the tradition. And uh, he finally decided to make a break with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which was, it was very difficult for him, uh, because he, he'd, um, he'd gotten all sorts of good things out of being associated with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, but he made the break. And one of the first things he did is he headed south. This is in 1933, and he headed from Kalamazoo down to a place called Camp Chesterfield in Indiana, uh, which is a spiritualist camp. And um, he continued going to this spiritualist camp uh, well until the 1970s. Um, so that's kind of the birthplace of his, his metaphysical journey, his, his real spiritual development. And it was there... Um, then he encountered a lot of different things that would play an important role in his life, including different forms of divination. And uh, one of these is dowsing, and he got absolutely fascinating with dowsing. Uh, and he probably from the 1930s, I'm not sure exactly when he started doing this, uh, but he definitely by the 1950s and 60s he was doing this, uh, he carried around a little pendulum in his pocket. And it was nothing more than a, a, a weight on the end of a string, so very simple device. And I'm not sure exactly how he used it, because he never actually recorded how he used it, but um, people who knew that he used it in decision-making uh, described that he would pull it out at various times when he had a difficult decision to make and um, ask it a series of yes-no questions. And depending on how it deflected, or some people said, depending on whether it went clockwise or counterclockwise, that would give him intuitions on, you know, what was the right decision under these circumstances. And so he, he really used these kinds of um, divinatory technologies as part of making some of his, his business decisions. And do you think his... So here's this amazing visionary in the media world, in a very early time in media, b building this truly amazing empire, do you think that his board members knew that he would go into his office and pull out this little weight and make decisions <laughs> that drove this amazing thing? Well, I think they had an inkling, but John Fetzer was very good at compartmentalizing his business life from his spiritual life. And I think part of this was he was just inherently private when it came to the side of his life for a variety of reasons. Um, part of it is he wanted the freedom to basically explore uh, wherever his search took him. And so he didn't want, you know, people looking over his shoulder in that sense. But he was also concerned early on that if um, people, especially in Southwest Michigan, which tends to be pretty conservative religiously, 
if they knew that he was interested in these metaphysical things and that he was basically exploring them, that he might lose um, either advertisers or audience members. Um, so he's very concerned about that kind of public image not get out there, that he was this uh, kind of alternative spiritual seeker. Um, so his his closest colleagues in his businesses, they knew he was into this stuff, but they never knew to what extent. And so I imagine um, they knew about the pendulum, but the other kinds of things and just how deep his spiritual search went. Uh, it was amazing reading the oral histories that the Fetzer Institute did uh, with some of um, John Fetzer's key colleagues in his business. Um, just how little they knew about his spiritual surge. And I want, I want to jump back for a moment to ask the question of, you talk about Camp Chesterfield was a spiritualist camp. What does mm-hmm. that mean at that time? What I, What is a spiritualist camp? Mm-hmm. Well, um, spiritualism developed as a religious tradition in the United States, and it's... Um, a, the traditional date is 1848, but it, it, it had been around a little bit longer than that. And the idea of spiritualism is that there are certain people who are endowed with the ability to communicate with the spirits of the dead. And these people, of course, are called mediums. And uh, for a variety of reasons, um, uh, a lot of 19th century Americans became fascinated by the seance, uh, the kind of ritual that's used by mediums to contact the spirits of the dead. And so spiritualism throughout the 19th century um, was one of the fastest growing new religious movements in the United States. And it's interesting because uh, it attracted both people who were Christians, but also people who were free thinkers. So it was kind of a big tent. And one of the ways that spiritualists would spread their message is through um, uh, these summer camps. And the summer camps were basically uh, modeled on the kind of revival camps that traditions like Methodism had, where people would get together for a period of time during the summer, and in the beginning, literally, they would camp out. They would bring tents, and they would camp out, and they'd listen to a series, in the case of the Methodists, a series of ministers. And the spiritualists basically copied this as a way of exposing a lot of people to the spiritual seance. So they created their own kind of revival camps, And some of these revival camps uh, became institutionalized and became year-round kind of psychic fairs where people would actually buy property and build little cottages and go every year uh, in order to hear spiritualist speakers or um, to do um, psychic healing or to go to a seance and those kinds of things. And so there are three in the United States that uh, date back to the 19th century that are still thriving um, one is in Florida, Casadaga, and another is in upstate New York. It's called Lilydale, and a third is in Indiana, and it's called Camp Chesterfield. And um, John Fetzer probably knew about Camp Chesterfield long before he went went there, um, because apparently everybody in Indiana knew about it. Uh, and once he went, he was just captivated by the spiritualism. He was fascinated by the mediums who who spoke to spirits. Uh, He was fascinated by the psychics. Uh, He was fascinated by the diviners, the people who did various forms of divination, uh, including um, astrology and tarot cards and the Ouija board, which became very important for John Fetzer. And the other thing about Camp Chesterfield is that um, 
it had a bookstore, it still has a bookstore, and it was probably one of the finest metaphysical bookstores you could go to to learn about um, spiritual traditions that we'd call today New Age. And so John Fetzer said that every time he went down there, he would come out with an armload of books and take them back to Kalamazoo and build his, his library and read these things assiduously. And so he was exposed to a lot of different traditions this way, um, not only spiritualism, but um, some Western esoteric things like Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism. And he was heavily influenced by theosophy, which became a tremendously important tradition for him. So the Champ Chesterfield really functioned for him like a, um, a psychic fair that he would go to almost yearly. Uh, to kind of re-energize his batteries and to learn something new uh, to add to his spiritual path. I'm pausing for a moment and thinking of, again, back to, I mean, I think it's one thing to pull a pendulum of any kind out of your pocket and use it in any part of the country, partially because mm -hmm. there was a lot of witching going on, finding wells by typically men, who would have a stick with a Y that you'd hold one in each hand and the point, and they'd walk yep. around a piece of property, and it would bounce up and down, and they'd find a well. And they were accurate. <laughs> Let's just cut to the exactly They were what, accurate. I mean, they could find water. Well, so that, John Fetzer actually bought a, a summer home in Arizona, and this was in the 1950s. And he bought a piece of property, and he brought out a hydraulic engineer to tell him where to drill a well, and the hydraulic engineer said, well, you're out of luck because there's no water here. And so um, Fetzer uh, got a couple of dowsers, a pair of guys who came out and did exactly what you're talking about. They, they, they had the traditional, you know, uh, witching stick, the dowsing rod. And they located what they said was, you know, if you go down 200 feet, you're going to get um, a, a nice, you know, continuous uh, fountain of water. And so Fetzer brought in a well digger uh, who basically told Fetzer, oh, you're wasting your money. This is ridiculous. And so Fetzer said, drill, and here's where you're going to drill. And as Fetzer told the story, they got down to like 190 feet, and they hadn't hit anything. And so they called Fetzer and said, you're just wasting your money. Let's just stop. And he said, nope, go on past 200 feet. And as Fetzer told it, they hit 200 feet, and they hit a, a just a, a wonderful stream of water. And he um, you know, John Fetzer had water on his property until the day he died. So he's very proud of that story because he, he was really interested yeah. in dowsing. Yeah. So I think that dowsing is uh, relatively respective, respected. That's in air quotes. As compared mm -hmm. to his usage of the Ouija board, which... Yes. Now, now my, my disclaimer is I've always lived in California. So most, mm -hmm. most of everything that we've talked about is just regular to me. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh, that, yes, of course. But yep. I can't imagine that using a Ouija board in the Midwest in the 40s or 50s or whenever he started doing that. That seemed like he had to go into like a special vaulted room to consult the Ouija board. <laughs> so talk about his usage of the Ouija board. I mean, that mm -hmm. even as a child, I was raised at a home where we worked, you know, used, we played, air quotes again, with a Ouija uh -huh. board. So I'm very familiar with them, and the idea of a corporate titan, a media leader, <laughs> consulting a Ouija board is like, <laughs> wow. So how did he do that? And, it, what, and did he use the Ouija board as much as he did the dowsing? 
Oh, the pendulum, I mean? Well, I don't think he used the Ouija board as much for business decisions, um, although he, he did. He, he would use it for both business decisions and also kind of personal decisions. But the Ouija board uh, was really important for him uh, for tracing his past lives. Um, he'd come to believe uh, that he had um, been reincarnated into a series of past lives, um, going all the way back to the mythical continent of Atlantis. And one of the ways he, well, he, he would go to um, uh, spiritualists and psychics to get information about his past lives. And um, sometime in the 1970s, he went uh, and, and um, had a session with a very famous British uh, medium named uh, Ina Twig. And she said, well, you use the, the Ouija board. You know how to use it. Um, why don't you use it to basically develop the details of your past lives? And so from that point on, he had been introduced to the Ouija board back in the 1930s and he'd used it. But in the 1970s, he began to use it intensively, and he never worked it alone. He always he had a personal secretary uh, who worked with him, and they worked the Ouija board together, and very painstakingly, basically developed um, some of the details of the of his past lives, and these were actually recorded uh, in a variety of transcripts. So I was able to go back and and look at these things and and look at some of the the insights and details from these past lives that John Fetzer had gotten through the Ouija board. So for him, I think the Ouija board was very important for his own personal um, spiritual development. Uh, although there are indications that he did use it occasionally for you know personal and, and, and business decisions. But again, he was very quiet about this. This was not something he advertised that he used. Um, and it was always, uh, you know, uh, done with his his uh, private secretary, his, his confidential secretary. Um, and the, the transcripts and things were simply for his memory and never really intended for um, public viewing. Um, so he was he was he was aware that uh, the Ouija board was probably one of these divinatory technologies that uh, uh, not everybody respected. Yeah, I remember as a kid being exposed to a Ouija board and it was simply a toy. And we thought it was all uh, a lot of fun, and we played with it and got bored with it, and that was that was the end of it. But doing this project is very interesting because um, I grew up in California, spent most of my early life in California, and nobody thought anything of it. But hmm. uh, talking to people in the Midwest, um, there are quite a few taboos about the the Ouija board and its potential to you know uh, channel some um, some uh, what not nice spirits, I guess. Uh, so I imagine if, if even today, uh, in the 21st century, people are concerned about the Ouija board here in, in, in the Midwest, uh, the, the kinds of concerns about it back in the 30s and 40s were even greater. So, yeah. Um, but for John Fetzer, it worked for him. And uh, he, was, he was learning things that he thought was, were important for his spiritual search. So uh, he was fearless and just plunging ahead and, and using these things. In my uh, circle, they would be called evil entities. <laughs> there was, mm -hmm. that, there was mm -hmm. that always that undertone of the idea that you could tap into something that could take, you know, classic possession. 
the idea right. that you know you would be opening yourself to the channels of oh, which is totally <laughs> possible. But you can be possessed at any moment. You don't have to be touching a Ouija board for that to happen, mm-hmm. in my view. Yeah. Um, so that that's amazing when I think about again back to you know who he was and what he did. The idea of him consulting a Ouija board warms my heart. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I want to step back for a moment and and talk about he was a, a a leader in a certain way. He also his wife was quite a partner for him. Wasn't there a period of time where she was really kind of running some of the stations or running a station? or mm-hmm. I mean, she was involved in his business life, which was not exactly the standard operating procedure of that of those decades. Talk about her, would you please? Yeah, Rhea Fetzer is uh, in, a very interesting person um, and, uh, you know, a strong, strong personality in her own right. Um they uh, met and married at uh, Manual Missionary College, and they were both Seventh-day Adventists, and they came from Seventh-day Adventist families. But together, they basically decided to, to leave the tradition uh, after they'd gotten married. Um, what's interesting is John Fetzer then went off on his spiritual search and really interest, interested in, in, in metaphysical things. And Rhea Fetzer, less so. Um, when they moved to Kalamazoo, she became a member of the local uh, Presbyterian church, and for all her life, essentially, she was, um, uh, I wouldn't say she was a fervent Presbyterian, but she was a good member of the congregation. So in that sense, it was kind of interesting because they didn't quite share the same spiritual outlook. However, when it came to business, um, they were both on the same page. And an interesting thing happened with the radio station here in Kalamazoo. Back in the 1930s, uh, Fetzer really wanted to expand the range of, uh, of how far he could broadcast, and it turned out there was there were laws um, that, because of the atmospheric conditions at night, uh, powerful radio stations could actually broadcast far much farther than they did during the day. Um, so Fetzer's radio station was constrained uh, to basically broadcast about 12 hours a day. Um, because if they broadcasted into the evening hours, their signal would overlap with and interfere with these powerful radio stations coming out of, um, I believe it was Detroit and Chicago. So Mm -hmm. uh, Fetzer worked with a radio engineer to develop a directional transmitter, uh, which broadcast in a a huge figure-eight configuration, north and south. So... uh, by using this directional antenna, this directional transmitter, rather, uh, Fetzer could broadcast at night uh, and reach audiences north and south of him without interfering with the signals coming east and west. And so this was experimental technology. It hadn't been approved. Um, so Fetzer had to go off to Washington, D.C., and he spent years in Washington, D.C., uh, lobbying Congress, uh, talking to the FCC. Um, uh, he got to know all sorts of uh, interesting political figures, including a couple of presidents. Uh, so this was tremendously important for Fetzer because eventually he did get FCC uh, approval of this directional transmitter, which helped him expand his business tremendously. But meanwhile, who's back in Kalamazoo actually running the day-to-day operation of the business? Uh, it was Rhea Fetzer. Um, and she apparently, um, unfortunately we don't have a whole lot of documentation of this, but she apparently was... Um, uh, uh, a, a fantastic businesswoman, and she kept the the um, 
the radio station operating uh, and basically helped transform it from a shoestring operation into the beginnings of what become the Fetzer Broadcasting uh, Network, which was you know John Fetzer's media empire. So without Rhea Fetzer, especially in those crucial years in the 1930s, early 40s, um, John Fetzer probably uh, would not have become the success he was. Wow. He had such an open mind in so many areas. It's really yes. quite astonishing for the era. It really is quite amazing. We have to take a short break for our sponsor, and I have a different question on a different angle, but we'll be right back. Soundhealthportal.com The body's vocal indicators move with every frequency set that goes from your brain to any part of your body. We have a Dr. Russ Rudy who came to us on a scooter. He had multiple sclerosis. Frequencies of his nerves were dead from the waist down. I'm speaking as a physician and a patient. Uh, I went down the medical road first. I didn't get any answers that were acceptable to me. You know, when they hear something like, I'm going to listen to you speak and I'm going to analyze and I'm going to play tones for you and make you better, it just sounds so foreign to what we're expecting. And it took us from November of one year to May of the next, and it regrew the nerves from his waist down. So now we can believe it because it was science. I, I've seen it work in so many cases. Oh, I'm proof of it. I mean, nobody, nobody five or six years ago would expect me to be doing what I am today. Join us at soundhealthportal.com. So things that are out there that we don't have very good treatment for, why shouldn't they be allowed to try something different? From Rhea running the really building and developing the corporate world of radio while he was in government trying to get them to let him use directional broadcasting. Was the Detroit Tigers a business investment or a passion investment? I don't see mm -hmm. it. He is so open-minded, I can't quite get where this fits in here. Well, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, he, um, he was a Detroit Tigers fan um, from childhood. And again, I think this is where radio plays a role because Oh, originally, they used to get um, the the, um, the scores for the games over the telegraph, and then when radio came and they started broadcasting, it wasn't play-by-play, -play, but at least descriptions of games. Um, even in Indiana, John Fetzer became a, a rabid Detroit Tigers fan. So I think since he was a kid, he just loved that team. And so in the 1950s, uh, when... The opportunity arose to um, to buy the team. Uh, he, of course, didn't have the money himself to buy it outright, but he put together a consortium of, of 11 different investors uh, who um, basically put in enough money that they were able to buy the team. And so that was 1956. And then uh, John Fetzer, who really wanted to run the ball team himself, uh, slowly but surely bought out his partners. And so by the early 60s, he became the um, sole owner of the Detroit Tigers. And from then on, um, it was a, it was a money-making proposition for him. So I think if, in terms of business, um, it was tremendously important. But I think also he, he, he always had this kind of um, nostalgic, small-town kind of sensibility to him. Uh, and baseball was just such a, a wonderful symbol of that kind of, you know, small town life. And I think it also fit into his kind of spiritual worldview as well, because 
um, one of the things he was developing in the 1950s was an interest in, in parapsychology. And uh, he was especially interested in things like um, uh, telepathy and ESP and things like that. And I think, I, I have no evidence of this because he didn't write about it, but I suspect that he really saw the ball team functioning, when it really functions as a team, it functions not only at the physical level, but also at the spiritual level. And so a really good team will have this kind of connection where they just anticipate what the other players are doing. And so I think to some degree, uh, he just saw the beauty of, of, of the athleticism of a baseball team, this team working together as not only, um, you know, a great kind of demonstration of, of the physical of athleticism, but also a great demonstration of community at the spiritual level, working at a, a very high level. So I think for him, it was both. It was, it was a business decision, which turned out to be um, tremendously good for him. Uh, he bought the team. I forget exactly what the dollar amount was, but it was something like $5 million. And then he wound up selling it for an ex in excess of $50 million in the 80s, uh, which was a tremendous profit. But he also really just loved the baseball team. And he always talked about it as a, as a trust. Um, he didn't really own the team. He was simply the, the how can we put it, the, the, the curator, if you will, the, the person who basically preserves the team from one generation to another. Um, and so he saw it as a, as a kind of civic responsibility as well, especially when Detroit started to decline in the 1960s and 70s, uh, he really saw the baseball team as, as a real symbol of, you know, hope for Detroit. So I think all these things were bound up in his decision to buy the ball team. And it seems like it could be a, a possible shining example. Uh, it, there's this quote on the infinitepotential.com page that says, to inquire into the interconnectedness between science and spirituality for the transformation of self and society. It almost seems to me that the base, not only the baseball team, but the connectedness of thousands of people gathering in a stadium to watch that game could in some way be a symbol of that interconnectedness. How he mm -hmm. could gather people to, he could gather people together in a large way I mean, he did it in media, but in media and radio, we don't see us all listening to the same thing at the same time. We don't, there's no visual. Right. Whereas this is, to right. me, an amazing visual of what he was about, which was this striving toward interconnectedness that we are all one. Because I know that that was one of his beliefs. Talk about that, please. Yes. Well, I, I, I'd never thought of it in quite that way, but I think you're exactly right, because you get all those people in a stadium, and you also broadcast the game. Um, yeah, think of all the people who are basically um, tuned in on the same wavelength, if you will, uh, at one time. And it is a kind of model or metaphor for what he was hoping for, for the planet. And he really believed that individuals could um, basically transform themselves uh, to a higher spiritual plane or a higher level of consciousness through a variety of different ways. Uh, and this fit with his metaphysical worldview. But he always felt that, again, just doing it for yourself wasn't enough. There had to be a social component to it. And so he always saw it in terms of if enough people on the planet basically uh, achieve these higher levels of consciousness, then we'll somehow catalyze a, a larger kind of global transformation. 
and that, of course, for him was was the new age. And this really became acute for him uh, during the 1960s because uh, he saw what was happening in the nation. And, of course, the United States was going through uh, another period of, of political tor- turmoil and social unrest. Uh, and he saw all the things that were basically tearing the country apart at that point. And being the great patriot he was, he really thought the United States had a, a kind of global mission uh, to transform the world, and this this internal conflict was really putting that global mission at risk. Um, and so he wrote about it in a couple of different places. Um, he was fascinated with genealogy, um, and this is another thing he used the Ouija board was was to develop his uh, his family trees. But he wrote uh, two books, or put together two books of genealogy. Um, the first one on his his father's family, and the second one on his his mother's family. And he took the opportunity at the end of these books uh, to write two or three chapters, basically outlining what his worldview was at that point. And in the second of these books, um, um, called The Road to Wingen, uh, which was about his mother's genealogy, uh, he wrote a separate section at the end of the book called America's Agony. And um, America's Agony was his, his, his take on the kind of political turmoil and social unrest of the 1960s and what the country needed to do to, to pull together. And his solutions are primarily um, metaphysical. And for example, one of the things he really wanted people to do uh, was to tune in on their own psychologies and understand themselves um, psychologically, and one of the best ways of doing this was through meditation. So it's here that uh, John Fetzer really begins to uh, promote the idea of meditation as a practice that everyone should engage in, um, not only for their own spiritual development, but also for the spiritual development ultimately of the nation. Um, so he always had this this kind of global vision. Uh, America figured quite prominently in it. He shared with this kind of very um, conservative patriotism of the 20th century. Um, but he saw it in terms of playing out in terms of these kind of larger larger spiritual forces. When did John start uh, in in the research? Does it kind of talk about when he started being a meditator? Was he exposed to it or did he just stumble onto it as, as his own? Or did he travel internationally to study other forms of... I don't know what that would be called, trancing or altered states? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did. Um, the, he traveled, um, his earliest travels were uh, at the behest of the U.S. government. Um, he was um, asked by Dwight Eisenhower after World War II uh, to go to Germany, and along with a number of other radio executives and journalists, to assess kind of the state of radio uh, in 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 Germany at the time, and what it would take to basically rebuild the the infrastructure, and of course he took that opportunity to uh, explore um, a variety of different spiritual things in Europe at the time, and then uh, later on uh, with the Detroit Tigers, he had the opportunity to travel to the to um, the Far East, so to Japan and, and and China, and eventually made his way to India and Egypt, and all of this had a tremendous impact on him. Now, on the one hand, he was doing PR for the baseball team, but on the other hand, he was seeking out people 
who were either practitioners or uh, theoreticians in a variety of different metaphysical ways. So that was a tremendously uh, important uh, trip for him. And he was absolutely fascinated by the uh, the iconography of ancient Egypt. So that was uh, an important part uh, of his trip. But the interesting thing is he admits uh, in America's Agony that even though he's read about meditation for years and he's practiced kind of new thought versions of meditation through uh, affirmations and things like that, um, that he'd never really systematically cultivated meditation. And so, uh, basically, put his money where his mouth was, um, he got very interested in transcendental meditation in the middle of the 1970s. Uh, he um, m- had the opportunity to meet the Maharishi Yogi, and, and it's interesting because the, the Maharishi basically told him about transcendental meditation and what he should do to get started and how to basically cultivate meditation in his daily life. And Fetzer, on the other hand, uh, counseled him in how to basically get the word out about TM uh, through American media. So there was a kind of synergy there between the between the two. And so for a number of years, John Fetzer and Rhea Fetzer um, became uh, very devoted practitioners of transcendental meditation. And that was the first meditation tradition that John Fetzer uh, took up. And he found it tremendously, tremendously useful. And in fact, um, this was the he, during his years owning the Detroit Tigers baseball team, he really wanted to be hands off in the actual day to day running of the baseball team um, because he believed if he you know hired the best people, uh, then they would have the know how to actually run a, a winning baseball team. Um, so he rarely got involved in kind of the day-to-day activities of the team. He was he was always in contact with his higher management on a daily basis, so uh, he knew what was going on, but he didn't want to interfere with the day-to-day stuff. However, he decided that um, the team might be interested in practicing TM. So uh, during one of the spring training sessions uh, in Florida, he basically offered the opportunity for the Detroit Tigers players um, to take a class in Transcendental Meditation if they wanted to. And this was uh, completely voluntary. There was no pressure. Anybody who wanted to do it. And a number of the players did um, start practicing Transcendental Meditation, and a couple of them kept up with it and said it really helped with their not only relaxing, but also their concentration on on the on the baseball field. So um, this was one of the cases where John Fetzer actually kind of injected his spiritual beliefs into uh, directly into his businesses, into his ball team. So he felt strongly enough about the importance of meditation. And then later uh, in the 1980s, uh, he got involved in a, um, a, 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 a meditation tradition uh, out of India called Radhaswami, or sometimes uh, Surya Shab Yoga. And he got involved in it um, through, originally through um, uh, an American variant of it called the uh, MSIA, the Movement for Spiritual Inner Awareness. Uh, He was initiated into MSIA and began doing their practices, their meditation practices. And then he, in his last years, had a a live-in caretaker who helped with his daily needs as he got older, uh, who was also uh, initiated into um, Surya Shab Yoga. And so they started doing that meditation. And literally, on his deathbed, John Fetzer was basically meditating. Um, So 
it, in the last 20 years of his life, meditation became tremendously important uh, part of his kind of spiritual worldview. I'm still trying to get over the idea of uh, mind-blowing that he would be getting the Detroit Tigers to do TM. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, there was a, That's there amazing. Was a there was a little bit of backlash because, unfortunately, the the season, you know, the the season right after that particular spring training, uh, they didn't do very well. So they had a very bad season, and there was a a, a minister in, in in West Michigan who basically said that, um, you know, the reason they're not playing well is because they've been exposed to this um, this disguised Hinduism of transcendental meditation. So, again, for John Fetzer, this was you know kind of a, a Another kind of reason why he didn't always want to uh, expose his his metaphysical beliefs to the public, but for the most part, <laughs> they were just would, very positive. Yeah. And the sports writers yeah. at the time, they loved it. They just absolutely loved this idea of, you know, um, the Detroit Tigers team getting spiritual. Uh, and so there are a couple of very interesting articles out of Detroit. Um, talking about this um, because, uh, like I said earlier, very few people really knew that John Fetzer was kind of on the spiritual path, and so for them, this was uh, something new. They they saw Fetzer, the sports writers saw Fetzer as a very kind of buttoned down, quiet, taciturn businessman, and the fact that he would introduce TM to the ball team uh, just didn't quite fit their understanding of his character. So that's a that's an interesting story. Perhaps he needed to give them a short lecture on the idea of karma. <laughs> that, could, that could explain, you know, give them some hints and clues to further uh, build the, uh, you know, oh, there could be karma involved here, guys. Uh, that would uh-huh. be fascinating. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, he used a, he used the term father of radiation. It mm-hmm. seems important. Uh, talk to us about the father of radiation. Yeah, well, this really goes back to um, his early kind of spiritual awakening uh, when he was building his first crystal radio set. And he began kind of meditating or thinking about the relationship between uh, electromagnetism, you know, these invisible rays that are winging their way through the atmosphere, and other subtle energies. And in this, uh, he was inspired by um, some articles that Nikola Tesla had written about the kind of unification of, of both psychic and um, in physical or empirical energies. Um, and so his entire worldview was kind of predicated on this, this um, metaphor of spirit as, as energy. And the important thing about this is that it's all pervasive. Um, it's always available for those who have the equipment that can tune into it, this kind of radio metaphor. Um, and he really believes that, um, oh, the other important thing, of course, it's dynamic. It's always flowing. So it's it's a, a universe not in stasis, but in a kind of dynamic flow, which was tremendously important. And he really believed that the origin of this uh, went back to a great central sun uh, at the center of the universe that was um, uh, basically radiating out um, both the physical and the subtle energies that make up the cosmos. And this is an idea he actually got out of earlier spiritualism and theosophy, and probably it goes all the way back to Emanuel Swedenborg, um, the great Swedish mystic. Uh, and it probably has 
you know, um, it probably the idea probably goes back even farther than that. But for John Fetzer, uh, this idea of the great central sun, this kind of non-anthropomorphic god that radiated energies to the universe, and in fact, all the universe was created from these energies, uh, really led him to a kind of awe. And he oftentimes talked about the great central sun as the father of radiation, which uh, basically um, uh, identifies it as a, as, a, as a god figure, but at the same time really talks about the importance of this kind of dynamic energy that's being radiated out from the center of the cosmos. And so it gives it this spiritual gloss, but also this sp uh, scientific gloss. And so by talking about the father of radiation, I think in a capsule, he's kind of talking about the kind of harmony between science and spirituality that he was always striving uh, to somehow achieve. And this leads into, uh, for me, uh, another question about he was really a thought leader. He did very early work, pioneering work with the Edgar Casey organization. Mm -hmm. He funded a global conference. You talk about in the book, the global conference in 1989 in Madras, India. So he moved into everything that he knew and had as a foundation into really looking, being a very early pioneer in the idea of taking everything that you just talked about and turned it into the idea of health or healing or or that aspect. What was his mm -hmm. work with Edgar Casey organization? Well, um, really started he, he in the 1950s. He became fascinated by uh, parapsychology, and so in the 1970s, when he first decided that he was going to liquidate his businesses or begin the process of liquidating his businesses to use the proceeds as a, an endowment for a foundation. Um, he decided that the foundation would fund um, research in parapsychology. And so um, that's what he did during the 1970s. And so they, they underwrote projects in ESP and remote viewing and all sorts of interesting things, poltergeists at one, at one time. Um, but at the end of the decade, he, had, he decided that the parapsychological research really wasn't going anywhere, that um, they weren't making the kinds of gains that he was hoping for. And so he was thinking about shifting the focus of his foundation, of, of what his foundation would fund. And at this time, he's in his late 70s, early 80s, and his health is actually beginning to, de to decline. And so he's extremely concerned with his health. And so... Um, I think these two things come together with the, the new orientation of the Fetzer Foundation. It was called the Fetzer Foundation until the end of the 1980s, and then they renamed it the Fetzer Institute. But at the early 80s, um, he decided he really wanted to focus on uh, alternative medicine um, and different forms of, of psychic healing. Now, he was probably reading... Edgar Casey by the 1940s. Um, he'd never met the man, but uh, he was really intrigued by the readings, by the, the channelings of Edgar Casey, uh, and especially in, in two fields. He was fascinated by Edgar Casey on Atlantis, but he was also fascinated with Edgar Casey on on healing, on health and healing. And um, one of the things that Edgar Casey talked about were possible uses of electronic technology to basically manipulate the 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 the, the bioenergetic uh, 
composition of the human body to um, diagnose and treat disease. So Fetzer, who was always fascinated with new technologies, um, this was something he really wanted to pursue. He really wanted to develop this idea that somehow you could come up with machines to measure the human aura uh, and basically use it for um, the treatment of, 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 of disease, of the diagnosis and treatment of disease. So he um, got together with the um, ARE, the Association for Research and Enlightenment Clinic, which was in Arizona, is in Arizona, uh, which is uh, Edgar Casey part of the larger Edgar Casey group. And there he found some like-minded people who were fascinated with various forms of alternative healing, basically the things that Edgar Casey had uh, had basically recommended in his readings, but especially energy medicine, the the use of subtle energies. Um, for the for the treatment of disease, and so together in in the mid 1980s, John Fetzer began funding in a heavy way uh, new programs at the ARE clinic in Arizona. And for a time, they they actually created the Johnny Fetzer Institute for Energy Medicine. Um, unfortunately, that didn't go very far because uh, when Fetzer passed away in 91, the Fetzer Foundation decided to go in a different direction. But one of their major accomplishments was, as you mentioned, um, this International Conference on Energy Medicine in, in Madras in India, which a lot of people point to as kind of the birth of, of uh, kind of international interest in energy medicine. Uh, I mean, the East has always had an interest in energy medicine. The West, in some ways, uh, but this was a kind of international gathering that brought together East and West to talk about the possibilities of not only subtle energies for healing, but also the possibilities of technology. Uh, and so we'll never know if that would have borne more fruit because, as I said, the Fetzer Institute decided to go in a different direction. But this was something that was very close to John Fetzer's heart. He just loved the idea that you could come up with a new technology that would harness subtle energies uh, for healing. Wow, what a spectrum of a life. I mean, I know there's mm. a lot more information, but I see that we're at time, the scope of his level of interest and all the while building this amazing business realm is really quite astonishing. I mean, he was tapped into some channel, and I mean that in the energy way, not so much like I think you know, so too. <laughs> the giant talking head. I just mean some kind of <laughs> channel because he was yeah. just how, what he achieved and what he was interested in, as you said, the, that he – it was enough that he built this amazing business empire, and yet the whole time he was he was able to really dive so deeply into this other realm is amazing. I mean, what an amazing force yeah. of nature he was. Yeah, I admire his energy uh, and his his intellectual capacity to do kind of hard headed business on the one hand, and then this just magnificent spiritual search on the other hand. Yeah, that is truly uh, an amazing thing. I cannot recommend the book highly enough. It's an amazing story, uh, and you're a great writer. I mean, it's really a story. Thank you. It's not just documentation. It's 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 a good read. It's a fun read, and uh, what a truly wow, an amazing guy. And uh, where would you where would you like people to find the Johnny Fetzer in the Quest for the New Age? Well, it's uh, available um, as a hardback and also as an ebook on Amazon.com and, of course, BarnesandNoble.com. 
Um, but your listeners can also go to um, a website, infinitepotential.com, which you mentioned earlier. And there, um, they can learn more about the Fetzer Memorial Trust, which underwrote the book, uh, but also download a free uh, PDF of the preface and first chapter. So you get a little taste of, of what we're talking about. And if people would like to learn more about the Fetzer Institute itself, um, they can go to fetzer.org. And uh, they have an amazing website that talks about the kinds of spiritual programs that they're pursuing today. Really wonderful. We could do a, we could do a whole other hour on his influence in energy medicine, even though he didn't get to institute itself, didn't keep that going. Really, the launch of that global conference and launching that part of the new age in energy medicine is really amazing just unto itself. Thank you so much, uh, Brian. That was great. Might have to have you Thank back you. for part two. <laughs> that was really I'd love to. Show. Yeah. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.